0: Welcome to PROTO, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine, produced in cooperation with Massachusetts General Hospital. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom Esquire, Ashoka Fellow and President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures.
1: Those who favor evidence-based medicine believe care will be more effective and cost-efficient if physicians base treatment decisions on scientific research instead of clinical observation and experience. But how good is the scientific evidence underlying evidence-based clinical guidelines? Who creates them? And why are such guidelines more important now than ever? Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Pearson, founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review at Massachusetts General Hospital and an expert in the area of evidence-based medicine. Dr. Pearson, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what are the compelling medical and financial reasons for U.S. physicians to improve their clinical decision-making using evidence-based medicine?
2: Well, I think we've become increasingly aware that medicine is a very complicated science, and the science base underlying the decisions that doctors make, both in diagnosis and in treatment, has just become much more complicated over the years. And that obviously provides a certain opportunity, but it also increases the risk that Doctors won't be able to keep up with all the latest evidence, and we do know that there are tremendous variations in the ways that doctors practice across the country, and those variations have tremendous impact on patients' outcomes and on the cost of our care. So at a time when we're really looking to try to control costs while maintaining or improving care, there's been a general feeling that better use of evidence and better generation of evidence is going to be one of the tools that we'll have to use.
1: So let's define evidence-based medicine and discuss how it could or should impact medical and financial issues.
2: Sure, well that's obviously a big topic. The one thing that I would hope to start by saying is that it's often viewed as an either or. We are either going to use clinical instinct, the art of medicine, the individual patient, or we're going to use this thing called evidence-based medicine. And really, it's not that. Evidence based medicine is supposed to support the improved personalization of healthcare. What it does is that it provides a support in evidence for what doctors will take into the examination room, and then they will always have to apply that evidence with the patient in front of them. And that will mean that the evidence may not always basically lead them to do the exact same thing for different patients. But without that evidence, without a good Firm grasp on what we can know about the risks and benefits of different tests and treatments. I think, in a sense, leaving medicine to some kind of old fashioned idea that it was just the doctor and everything he'd learned in medical school for the rest of his life, that's what he was going to use. I think that is really outdated.
1: So let's talk about this because it's a really interesting topic for the practicing physician. How does evidence based medicine come about? Is it through controlled clinical trials?
2: Well, that's certainly been one important way. I think as the science of medicine has basically become more complicated in many ways, one of the things that's also, uh, I think, advanced has been our understanding of the different types of studies and the different, basically, advantages and disadvantages of different kinds of studies. Many people view the gold standard as being a randomized controlled trial that's blinded between both patients and physicians. But those trials are very hard to do. They take a long time, and they usually result in data that's on a very narrow kind of slice of the type of patients that many physicians treat. So I think we also have to get smarter, and this is part of what evidence-based medicine as an initiative is trying to do, trying to get smarter itself about how we use existing data from health plan data sets, from clinical registries that can be set up, from other sources, and so use a blend of different types of studies based on either observational data or clinical trials, again, to try to improve the insights into what works and for whom.
1: So are there new ways that we're going to be collecting this data?
2: Absolutely. That is, in many ways, actually part of the federal research that's being kind of enhanced around comparative effectiveness. Most of the money through the stimulus package that went into comparative effectiveness research, which is an important branch, if you will, of evidence-based medicine, is going towards the development of an infrastructure so that we can use data in a more sophisticated and a quicker manner to learn things without having to wait the years and years that it usually takes to get a clinical trial up and going and then analyze the results. So we are going to be looking for new ways to use electronic medical records and, again, as I said, health plan data sets and other sources, and that all has to be done with a lot of thinking about confidentiality and the burden on physician offices. All those things have to be kept in view But I do think that the practice of the future will be much more part of what people are calling a learning healthcare system, where basically what we do both benefits the individual patient, but somehow is wrapped into an effort
1: to learn more. Some of the geographic patterns of the practice of medicine differ so widely. How important is it that those be either allowed to stay or that we get some kind of consensus to practice the same throughout the country? And how is evidence-based medicine involved in that?
2: Well, the number one goal is to try to understand if there is variation, which there always is going to be. Is that variation justified by differences in patient clinical situations? Sometimes it's completely justified by the fact that, again, patients in Florida and patients in Montana may have different financial resources. They may have different preferences and attitudes about different risks. And the resources that are available may be different in different parts of the country. So there are often very reasonable underlying reasons that we see variation On the other hand the best studies that have been able to be done on those aspects of reasonable variation still end up with a lot of variation left over that doesn't seem to be explained by anything other than perhaps the fact that you know certain physicians in certain parts of the country are more aggressive or seem more aggressive. We have some reasons to try to understand that better To a certain extent variation again isn't a bad thing in and of itself but it asks a question and evidence-based medicine should as an initiative, try to understand that variation, and then try to help physicians, I agree, come to some kind of greater consensus, especially where the options that patients face really open up huge differences in the potential risks and benefits and the potential costs. It's in those areas, and that's where, if you look at the priority lists that the Institute of Medicine and others have come up with for evidence-based medicine or comparative effectiveness research, you'll see topics such as the treatment of patients with atrial fibrillation, where the options range from taking pills for the rest of your life to having an upfront surgical intervention or an invasive catheter ablation of the heart. These are very different types of interventions, and yet we know very, very little about how they really compare head-to-head for patient outcomes. So, and we know that there are lots of variations, and I think you can understand why. If we don't really know, then you know, it wouldn't, it's hard to know whether more catheter ablations or less is the right thing to do. So we need better evidence, and then we need to share that evidence with physicians and patients
1: and see if we can come to a more consistent approach. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Proto. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Pearson, founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review at Massachusetts General Hospital and an expert in the area of evidence-based medicine. So let's focus in on atrial fibrillation. So what would your institute say we should do when we don't know whether catheterization, ablation, surgery, or drugs is the right thing?
2: Well, again, the first thing to remember is that rarely is there a blanket answer that any of these options is better for everyone than the other. And again, that's often a concern that evidence-based medicine will be used as a one-size-fits-all approach to answering that question. The real goal is to figure out for which patients one of these approaches might be preferable. And understand really what we need to know about the individual patient. Is it their ability to follow up with the medications that might really be the tipping point that would make one option better than the other for that individual patient? So we have to remember that there's a lot of importance in the diversity of patients that evidence-based medicine
1: needs to try to remain sensitive to. How do you deal with that diversity then when you come up with a guideline but As a cardiologist, the next 40 patients I see with atrial fibrillation are all going to look different from the other 39.
2: Well, that's the interesting thing about guidelines. There's not just one kind of guideline. Some guidelines are basically created when we know exactly what we should do for basically every type of patient. For instance, I think doctors know that virtually all patients with a heart attack should be given aspirin. That would go into a guideline as basically a reminder that This should be basically a hardwired clinical intervention. There might be the rare patient, very rare patient, who's either allergic to aspirin or might have some other contraindication. But otherwise, that's part of a clinical guideline for the care of patients with myocardial infarction. On the other hand, many guidelines are created where there is acknowledged uncertainty. And it's that uncertainty that drives the interest. And people say, well, let's bring together the best clinicians with a broad variety of backgrounds or perspectives. Let them look at the evidence. And we know that there's still going to be a lot of uncertainty, but at least with a guideline, they will lay out the key issues. They will start to, you know, suggest a way of moving forward. And maybe if there is consensus, they can express that. But often those guidelines end up just highlighting where we need to do more work, more research, etc., in order to answer the real questions. So guidelines can be viewed as something that is a – must-do kind of guideline, and or they can be really used to highlight the areas of uncertainty.
1: So your Institute for Clinical and Economic Review is one of the handful of organizations that quantify the clinical and economic value of various treatments. How do you go about that, and for whom are you doing this work?
2: Well, we have an academic research group, and when we pick a topic to look at, we evaluate, again, as you said, both the comparative clinical effectiveness and what we call the comparative value of the intervention for different patient populations. We form a high-level national expert group that includes clinicians, patients, representatives of manufacturers and health plans, and independent methodology and policy experts, and we basically have them as an advisory group to us as we do a systematic review of the published uh, medical literature in this area as well as developing what's called a decision analytic model. It's basically a simulation model where you plug in the risks and the benefits and you kind of, as I mentioned for cost effectiveness, you play things out through time to try to come up with summary estimates of the long-term benefits and costs of different approaches to care. We bring this information together. We kind of develop it, again, with the input kind of peer review of this external advisory group. We deliberate it in public and we put it out, hopefully, in a format that both answers the needs of those who are interested in the really rigorous science, but also those who want to try to think about it and apply it in the world of clinical practice and medical policy. So our customers, if you will, it's it's really everybody, academics, patients. We're actually using some of our work to create decision-making guides for patients that will be freely available to them on the web. We have one now that we're working on on localized prostate cancer treatments. We certainly hope that clinicians will use it. We do know that some clinical groups are using our work as part of their thinking about the comparative effectiveness of what they do. Again, payers and other policy makers, I think, are likely to want to look at it in terms of their thinking, both rarely about coverage decisions, more often about how to structure their payments or other aspects of medical policies to try to encourage that the right treatments are used for the right patients And if we have two options that are really essentially the same in terms of their clinical effectiveness, payers as well as others may have an interest in trying to support the use of the less expensive or more cost-effective options
1: first. So when you run into one of these areas and work through this process, do you sometimes see that payers on the one hand and clinicians on the other hand or even patients on a third hand see what you're doing in a different way? And does that create some? Difficulty in getting these implemented? Absolutely. Well, what I hope it does, in difficulty is perhaps too negative a word. What often a review of
2: the evidence does, especially if it can be done by someone who doesn't have an iron in the fire, who has relatively low conflicts of interest, if you can start to talk about the evidence, it brings people together and they can argue about what's important. They can argue about interpretations of different types of evidence. But actually, in my experience, it helps focus a dialogue about this in a way that actually leads to
1: more consensus than you might imagine. We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Pearson about evidence-based medicine. Dr. Pearson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Proto, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Medicine, is produced in cooperation with Massachusetts General Hospital and Time, Inc. Content Solutions. For more information about this show, please visit ReachMD.com forward slash Proto. Let Proto Magazine take you to the frontiers of medicine. How might handwriting hint at disease? What really causes osteoarthritis? Who should be creating evidence-based guidelines? Proto Magazine, published by Massachusetts General Hospital, explores compelling breakthroughs and controversial ideas in the lab, on the wards, and in health policy. Visit our website, protomag.com, for your complimentary issue and to view the latest advances and updates in clinical research, basic research, and health policy. That's protomag.com forward slash reachmd.